Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, it's funny how life can often throw us curveballs and, and our expected path can deviate and take very, very different directions. My next guest, Mike Malatesta, worked in a business that, and, and in a job that he loved and, and honestly thought he'd be the CEO of one day. Uh, and ultimately, he ended up getting fired from this job, that, and, and, which, as you can imagine, was a pretty pivotal moment in his life. But what was really interesting was how Mike responded. Now, he went from you know, surviving the day-to-day to ultimately building an amazing business in the waste management space. And what is especially interesting is how he goes on and ends up using acquisitions as a growth strategy. And through this episode, he shares a bunch of lessons about people and processes and the importance of mindset. Now, ultimately, in the end, Mike sold his business for over eight times EBITDA without an earnout, and the deal was wrapped up in an, a super quick time which, let's be honest, is a result most business owners would love to have. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. This is Mike Malatesta. Hey, Mike. Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I am so happy to be here, Simon. Thanks for having me on your show. My absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to, to unpacking your story and uh, you know, hearing a lot more about advanced waste services um, and, and your journey since then. Um, Mike, maybe just for our listeners, maybe you could kick off and just give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to starting that business. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I started that business when I was 26 years old and, um, six months, seven months before I started that business, I had no idea that I would become an entrepreneur that year. I, about five years earlier, after I'd graduated from college or university, I got a job with a with a waste management company, a big waste management company as a management trainee, Simon. And I was just, I loved doing that. And I loved being part of that. And I, in, in, in five years, I moved four times because I was just saying yes to every opportunity they were giving me. And I was, I was moving up and I was moving around. And I thought to myself, man, this is so great. You know, one day, you know, I could run this place. I could be the CEO of this place. You know, maybe things keep going well. And um, and one afternoon, my boss called me and wanted to come see me. And he 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 was about an hour and a half away or so. And I said, Yeah, sure. Yeah, come come on up. And he came up that and that afternoon, I got fired from that job. And wow, yeah. Uh, so so there I was, um, not knowing what 
what to make of all that, not knowing what to do and, and not having no other plan, of course, which usually happens when you get yourself in that situation. And, um, my immediate instinct was to get another job because that's just what I thought I needed to do, what I should do. And, and so I did. And, and, um, and unfortunately for me at the time, but fortunately in retrospect, the the person that I went to work for was just a, uh, just, just a person that I did not, um, we did not connect very well. Let's put it that way. And he was very, uh, he was very mean to me. And, uh, I lasted there about a month and I just had to, I had this, you know, this like pit in my stomach where I was like, I'm making the wrong, I'm making the wrong decision. I'm making the wrong decision. And, and so I left there and, and, you know, in the course of, uh, 60 days or so, I'd been fired from a job I thought I, you know, was doing great at. And then I, and then I, I quit a job that I hated and I thought I was just a real loser. <laughs> I just sat, I was in very oh. bad shape. And, um, but if that hadn't happened, um, you know, like I said, seven months later, I wouldn't have become an entrepreneur. So that being fired and then being, uh, quitting that job and, you know, having worked for that terrible person, um, really was a, was a blessing to me. And a person that I knew a little bit came out of the, you know, out of nowhere after I was, had, had gone through that and, and said to me, Hey, you know, if you're interested in, in starting a business, I'd love to, you know, talk to you about it and be, you know, maybe be a partner. And I, that was so out of left field, Simon, that I was, but it also was the first boost of confidence that I'd had in, <laughs> in a, in a couple of months. And, um, that started a conversation and, and that conversation led to what I call, you know, the dream stage of entrepreneurism. And we were like, yeah, we can do this. And, <laughs> and, uh, that's what we did. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it never ceases to amaze me the endless, you know, boundless levels of enthusiasm for with business owners who've just started on a new oh, journey. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Having done that myself a few times too, you know, hey, we can climb any mountain, we can do anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's how we, that's how, yeah. we, that's how we felt, or that's how, at least what we talked ourselves into. Yeah. Yeah. So this was your first foray into a business for yourself. Yes, it was correct. Um, and 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 how how did you go about that discussion? You know, like did did you put capital in? Was it just sweat equity? What was the you know? Did you own fifty percent? What what was that sort of? How did it all kick off? Yeah. Um, well, we yes to all of those questions. So we um, Butch and I uh, we we uh, came up with with. You know, we talked about and came up with this idea uh, of starting a waste uh, a waste management business around his kitchen table um, after work. You know, after he he was still working, so I would come there after dinner and we would we would talk and and you know then came a business plan and then came you know the need to raise funds and so he um, and and you know God bless him he he. He was at the time married, uh, four daughters, had a house, had a mortgage, he had all this stuff. And I, I was married, but didn't have any of that other stuff. And, um, so with all those obligations, he still, you know, cashed in a CD that he had, put that into the business. We cashed in all of, uh, our, uh, retirement savings, everything that we had, um, 
my parents lent me money, my wife's parents lent me money. Um, and then we, we, we got money from, uh, well, we got approved for a loan from a bank as well. Um, but they wouldn't give us the loan unless we came up with 25,000 more dollars. And we didn't have 25,000 more dollars or 25 more dollars for that matter. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 you know, the short story is I, I knew one person that I thought might have the money and be willing to, to, to lend it to us or invest in us. And I went to him and after a couple of discussions, he partnered up with his friend and said he would do it with, as long as he and his friend could split it. And I said, sure, because we, you know, there was not, had no leverage, you know. And um, yeah, so we, so the, 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 uh, that got us off the ground. The initial capital structure was, I, I think I owned 48% and Butch owned 30 some percent. And the, and the other two guys owned the, the rest between them, maybe tw- whatever it was, 25. Yeah, yeah. So that's how we got started. Yeah, cool, cool. And and out of interest, I mean, so so it's a startup. You weren't buying another business. It's very early stage. But but did you have any kind of discussion at that point around what an what what the end game might look like? The end game, no. Um, I we had. You know that we we put together this business plan for the bank and. Um, you know, it showed it showed, you know, modest growth, you know, modest earnings, that kind of thing. But I always had bigger dreams. I always I thought, wow, this thing's going to be huge, you know, because you're in the dream stage. I this thing's going to be huge, and um, uh, it took a long time for it to get huge. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> what year was it? That was, what year was we? Did you kick off? Uh, we started in November of 1992. 92. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, just, just so we can timeline this for a little bit of people, we can visualize it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, so, um, we did not have an exit plan at the beginning or for a long time for that matter. We, we were all about survival. We weren't thinking about, we weren't thinking about building value. We weren't thinking about, you know, the end game. We weren't thinking about liquidating. We weren't thinking about anything except, you know, for a long onwards time, today, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so uh, give us a bit of a sense of of what the sort of growth of the company looked like. You know, when, when did it move beyond you and Butch and you start getting employees and, you know, were you covering a certain geographic area? What, what, what did all that look like? Yeah, well, we started the business in the in the upper Midwest the U.S., so uh, in, in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And sure. So at first we were just, um, Chicago is about a hundred miles away from Milwaukee. And so our first sort of little geography was Milwaukee, Chicago. And when we ended the first year, we had, uh, four people, maybe, maybe five. So it started with the two of us. And by the end we had, we had five and then, um, you know, and then we, we, we just started really just adding, you know, a few people every year. I think after three or four years, we had 20, 25 people. And, um, and then when we got to, you know, 10 years, we had 70 
and 20 years, you know, we had 150. Um, so, yeah, but it was, it was, you know, it was always, I, I call it now in retrospect, I call it slow and consistent. Some people may look at that and call it something else, but, um, but that's how we, that's, that's how we did it. Yeah, yeah, cool. And, and and just for the sort of uninitiated here, what what did what defines waste services for for that oh. company? Like, what what were you guys actually doing? Yeah, good good question. Because there's a lot of different types of waste services. So what we focused on was was uh, waste water from factories. So factories producing all different types of products. They use water in the process. They contaminate it, and it. <clears throat> has to be cleaned up before it can be recycled in the sewer system. And so they would hire someone like us to come with a with a, a vacuum truck um, and we would basically suck the water out of a tank that they had or a pit or whatever. And we would haul it to uh, initially to treatment plants that we didn't own. We just um, brokered it really. And then um, later, few years after we started, we started getting into the actual treatment of waste ourselves. And that was a big change for us that really accelerated the, helped accelerate the growth of the business. Um, so we started with wastewater, just as a, just trucking wastewater. And, and from that, we added uh, a, a bunch of tangential value add services over the years. So we, um, you know, we started doing we started doing all kinds of cleaning projects inside of factories. We, we did, um, uh, you know, ha hazardous waste. We packaged waste for people. We, we, uh, you know, we basically just got into everything that we could get into that had some type of waste as a component. But one thing that we didn't do was like trash or rubbish or we didn't do that at all. We just did, um, you know, like I said, uh, the, you know, industrial process waste. Yeah, yeah. So not nothing to do with sort of just grabbing trash and dumping in a landfill. Yeah, um, right. So, so it sounds to me like it's the classic kind of cross sell, right? You've gone out there, you've got a good service that you can provide. You've developed relationships, and then you've developed further services or products that you can bolt on and cross sell That's to your existing exactly, client base. Exactly right. So we led with wastewater, and then we tried to uh, you know get sticky with everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, and and so give us a bit of a sense of, um, you know, so you started in '92, just to sort of bookend it. When, when did you actually exit the business? Two thousand and fifteen. Okay, so you're talking you know, twenty three odd years. Yeah, yeah. So can you give us a sense of like how big did the company grow in terms of revenue, employees, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So when when we sold the business, it was uh, the revenue was about forty five million uh, a year, and we had about hundred and fifty team members at the time. Yeah. Cool. And and had you expanded beyond Milwaukee in that area? Was oh other yeah. States now. We or? were in uh, we were in five states uh, at that time. Um, so we we once we like I mentioned, we got into the the treatment of, of wastewater and other types of waste. And once we figured out how to do that, that was sort of um, the thing that we began, be, began the process of us saying, well, where else can we do this? Um, because we know how to do it now. 
and we can only go so far with the trucks, you know, the places we have now, cause you can only haul so far economically. Um, and so that's what, what got us going into, um, additional States. And so we were, yeah, we were in five States, uh, by the time we sold the business. And, and just out of interest, I mean, those five states, you know, I guess for those who might be listening, thinking about geographic expansion, I mean, did yeah. you did you just move to the nearest states because, you know, maybe there's some advantage in doing that? Or, or did you pick other states that just had more size and scale and things like that? Well, uh, that's a great question. We So we, we came up with this model that we called the service triangle model, and we wanted to triangulate facilities around geographic areas. So, for example, um, you know, for in our market, if Chicago was sort of, if we called Chicago the middle, we wanted to have, we wanted to triangulate that so that we would have a lot of efficiencies when it came to response time and trucking uh, routes and that kind of thing. And we wanted to take that service triangle and then replicate it in other parts of of the country. The the the. The hard part about that was, um, you know, the opportunities to acquire someone to, to you know, to, to help you build that triangle out, which we did end up doing, wasn't always nicely available in the perfect spot, you know, to, to do this triangular uh, approach. So we, um, we ended up with, with some uh, operations that, you know, didn't have the same uh, economies of scale as we were trying to get on the tri- with the triangular with the triangle service model, but um, but that was our plan. And then the company that bought us, um, y- you know, was able to execute more on that plan. So it was a good it was a good plan, but we we only got it so far. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. I can imagine you've got your city in the middle, and then you know various sort of service centers or cities around it, so you can consolidate i think i think that makes a, a, a lot of sense once you moved out of the milwaukee chicago area what, what were some of the key areas you, you looked at we we ended up in uh, indiana we ended up in iowa uh, and we ended up in um, pennsylvania western pennsylvania like near pittsburgh um, so for you know if if you're looking for geography you can see that you know Pennsylvania is connected to Ohio, is connected to Indiana, is connected to Illinois, is connected to Iowa, and is connected to Wisconsin. So there was, you know, this contiguous states. We just, we, you know, we really wanted to be in Ohio, and we just we weren't able to get that done while we owned the business. But, but yeah, we 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 weren't trying to. We didn't think it was smart for us to go to Texas, you know, or go to Florida or something like that. We wanted everything to build off the other so we could share resources we could you know get economies of scale as i mentioned those kinds of things yeah yeah no that sounds that sounds smart um so where where on this journey did you start um investing in your own infrastructure and treatment facilities and stuff like that the first investment we made in that was 1996 so a couple of years a couple of years in and by 1998 we kind of had it dialed in because we were just truck, you know, we were just truckers, really. We didn't know how to do all this stuff. So there was, there's a learning curve like there is to everything. <laughs> yeah. um, so it took us a couple of years. And then once we, you know, in 1998, 99 or so, we, we thought we had it down good enough that we could, uh, you know, go out and, and, and try to, uh, uh, 
you know, acquire, acquire facilities or build facilities from scratch. And we ended up doing both. Okay. Okay. Did, did, was, so, I mean, that can be quite a fundamental shift in a business model, right? You know, investing in that kind of, those yeah. kind of assets and infrastructure. Um, was the business in a position just to do that with its own cash flows or did you have to bring in other investors to, to help you achieve that? Yeah, let me, so first I'll address that, the, 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 um, you know, the shift in the business model, because when we got into this, we did not, we wanted to be sort of the independent, we're not tied to one facility. We we're you know, our goal is to get the client the best result possible. And it turned out that a couple years in, like just before 1996, we had been doing that really well. Um, but one of our partners with, who had a treatment facility ended up, um, well, they, they partnered with another trucking company and they started going around us and trying to get our customers from us. And so that was, I call, I call that a, one of, one of my many baseball, uh, bat to the head sort of wake up calls like, oh, okay. So this is how it works because I, you know, I was, I sort of had this dream that, you know, if we just provided the best service and we were independent and we were always looking out for our clients, that that would be enough. And it turned out that that, um, it wasn't enough, you know, that, that, um, you had to control the relation. And I, I, I use the word control and I don't mean it in control, but you, you the, the less, the more that you were, we, we found that the more we were involved in the, in the, you know, from point of generation to point of disposal in this, in this case, the better it was for, for our business and probably better for the, for the client, um, as well. So we definitely shifted our, um, our thinking on that. And I think it's, you know, the, the name of my book is owner shift, right? Cause I, I just believe that the, every business, you know, the, 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 the word pivot is used a lot now, and I don't believe many. I don't believe many businesses actually pivot. I think they shift, um, and I think all businesses need to shift over time because you learn, uh, you get baseball bats to the head or whatever, whatever ends up <laughs> happening, and and you shift. But um, fortunately, to to your financing question, fortunately we were always able to once we had a good, you know, decent track record established, we were always able to get the money we needed from uh from a bank now i will say we made our very first acquisition in 1995 and we did um we actually my my partner larry and chuck or my partners the the last people we brought in helped they they had a friend who didn't want to invest in our business when it was a startup but was interested in doing so when we wanted to make an acquisition and they they lent us the money for that because it was more than we could get from the bank. So that was the one time we brought in outside investment but it wasn't equity it was just a it was just a loan. Yeah, okay. Okay. It's funny you talk about loans. I was I couldn't help but think when you started your business in 92 the level of interest rates in an environment like that compared to the stuff we see today. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, I, I yeah, you know, we just had a massive recession from, you know, 91 and all that period. I, I know in Australia, like even home loans, interest rates were like 17, 18%. 
um, you know, just unfathomable in today's environment. Right, 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 right. We and I, I don't remember the exact interest rate at the time, but it was I think in the eight, you know, eight nine percent range, and we were so happy we got the yeah. loan. You know, it was just <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it could have been fifteen percent. I wouldn't have cared. You know, it's like yeah. we need the money, right? <laughs> we were just happy. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, talk to me a little bit about um the the option of you know using acquisitions as a growth strategy because i i think for a lot of business owners and a lot of people that might be listening to this i certainly i, th- I think most people lean just naturally into just organic growth right like let's just do more of what we do let's uh oh wow we're getting some traction let's hire a new salesperson or w- whatever it might be to to keep that organic growth going um but i find that a lot of people somewhere on their journey start to wonder is it worth continuing to invest over here or or maybe we should just buy that competitor or buy that other business, whatever it might be? C- can you talk us through, I guess, some of your thinking and, and, and what happened on your journey? Yeah, sure. So, of course, uh, at the beginning and for the first couple of years, we had this, you know, we're, we're just going to grow organically. Um, and and we didn't have any thought about making acquisitions or or even expanding regionally or anything like that, you know. But but when when the first acquisition became available, it was just something that, you know, it, it was one of those things where uh, a big corporation was divesting a small portion of their operation that happened to fit into exactly what we wanted that we were what we were doing, and so it was one of those things where. You could sell it. They were selling it for for book value. All they wanted to do is make sure they didn't take a loss on their books, and it and it also came with a with a with a good sized contract. So it was one of those things that was very hard to ignore. And then and then once we did it, and got through the initial pains of doing that because we had no idea how to acquire something and integrate something, um, then we started thinking about you know harder about what our strategy should be and. And we we settled on a 50-50 strategy, 50 organic growth, 50% acquisition. And the reason for that was when when we needed to grow regionally, you know, with, with different locations, we just you just can't put a salesperson in a region if you can't service the region. And so for us, I, I think some of it depends on the type of sale and the type of industry you're in. We also have a long sales cycle typically, and you know, so it takes a long time to build a, a, a really great client base. Um, so by, by acquiring businesses, we were able to shorten that part of the cycle, and we were able to focus on cleaning up the operation to get it where we needed to, 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 to get it. But we still had the cash coming in from their existing clients, and then we could build out our sales network too around, you know, around the operation. So we just felt like that worked better for us. And and I don't know how we could have done it, you know, just strictly organically if we wanted to grow outside of our initial region. Yeah, sure, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Out of interest, I mean. Having done a number of acquisitions as you as you have now, is is there is there one particular area when you're doing acquisitions that that you feel presents the most challenges or the most risk to to an acquirer? Yeah, 
So it's never the it's it's hardly ever the financial performance of the company. And that's the problem, I think, with so many acquisitions is you look at the financial performance of the company and you base the whole value of the business on it. And you think, oh, it's a great business or it's a fixer upper or it's this or it's that, whatever, based on the financials. And you don't um, that the, the you don't get into the real what 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 are going to be the real issues of that company. and. What I mean by that is people, you know, people, even great people, if they, when they're working for someone else can be terrible working with you um, because, you know, you're different than what they're used to. Um, they're different than what you're used to. You know, there's all these kinds of things and you can't program it and you can't approach it in a way that's a one size fits all. Believe me, I've tried that. Thinking, well, it makes sense to me. It's got to make sense to everybody, right? Because I'm a good person. I'm a good, you know. And yeah, it doesn't always make sense to to everybody. They just don't. They don't. They don't believe it. They don't buy in on it. They don't like it or whatever. Um. So I think that's. And I, you know, like all the money running around now buying companies, and I've been doing it. So I, I know I speak from experience. The you know the the financial part of the transaction and and keeping the the company you know meeting financial targets is uh, that's not the, that's not going to be your biggest problem in most cases your biggest problem is going to be getting people to feel like they're an important part of the team when when the connection they have to whomever they had it with who owned the business or whatever is is changed or broken or gone yeah 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 and yeah look it's i find it really interesting because i i think even if you go back prior to a transaction happening um i find you know we we do a lot of sell side um work and i just find that where you know you've got the the business owner and their mindset about how things are going to work and then as you say i mean like employees will have a very very different view and and I guess in instances where I've seen small teams of of important employees brought into the conversation earlier, you know, like maybe they're a part of the management team or whatever it might be, um, I, I'm I see we're all on a bell curve, right? <laughs> at at one end of the bell curve, there's people who see this as a massive opportunity. How exciting! We're gonna, you know, if this goes through, we'll be acquired by a bigger company, and they all they see is the upside opportunity. Um, because I think in a lot of ways they're confident and they back themselves and, and bigger companies mean m- more, more things to do, more opportunity. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the chicken little, sky's falling on my head, everything's terrible, it's going to end badly. Um, and then, of course, you get a whole bunch of people in the middle who just go, oh, I just don't know, I've never done this before, and you know, we'll just kind of hang out and wait and see. Um, so I, I guess it's, it, in my mind, I, I'm always sort of thinking about once a transaction goes through what are those one or two kind of or you know what are, what, are, what are the one or two core things that need to be done to bring those people on the journey understanding that they're all in a very very different headspace um so you know this question about how do what do we communicate and when and how and you know all that sort of stuff becomes i mean it's obviously individual to each company but but there there are some i think fundamental principles behind it all i th- you know i think you're right and, and- 
that was a good point you brought up too about bringing people in early. Because I think most entrepreneurs, when they go to sell their business, they don't want anybody else to know. And they think that that's a, that's a threat to have any to have someone else know. So the first, so you're completely reliant on their word about the people. And there's no, I, you know, there's not many people out there that go, oh, you know, I have a, I have such a terrible team. And let me tell you how bad they are. <laughs> right? Everybody's got a great team. They're awesome. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can't, <laughs> yeah. you can't meet any of them or talk to any of them, but believe me, they're awesome. <laughs> and then, so you, you believe that, and then you get in and you go, oh. Not everyone's awesome, <laughs> but, but if they do come to the table early, um, you do the, the, I think that that can really work. And I love it when, when people that we're trying to buy do that, um, because, you know, it's just a head start on getting them to buy in on what, what, what the, the future that we're going to present to them. And, um, and then they they can help you once you've done it because they can talk to everybody else and say, hey, I've been in, I've been you know meeting with these people for a while and this is really going to work and they can really be your inside cheerleaders. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and I think too it's it's a balancing act, right? Because I think business owners are, are naturally concerned about how employees will react. You know, right. they don't want things to blow up. They don't want to lose staff. They don't want to, you know, there's all these things going through their head. Um, but having said all that. You know, I, as a, you know, if there's such a thing as a general rule with these things, I think if you can give people, so as one business owner thinking about your team and thinking about selling the business, if you can give your key people the time and the attention and that, that they deserve the care, that like actually really care about how they feel and, and think about what their journey is going to look like through this process. And you can openly communicate with them and give them that one-on-one -on -one time, right? Like it's, uh, I think people want, want to know that they're going to be taken care of or that their situation has been considered and that, you know, there's, there's, there's upside for them as well, right? So um, I don't know how else to describe that other than bringing people on the journey. And that means making everybody feel like they're in the boat in the first place. I think it's so, I, so in all the ones that I've done, so far, I think that I come down this, you, it's in, you have to let your key people know that you are considering this and you have to involve them in the process. And that's, and then the rest of the people, I would say, don't, don't go there. You don't need to go there. Um, like you said, they, they may be the people who are going to be giving, you know, willing to give it a try no matter what. So if there's no use getting them, uh, you know, in their head about something that, you know, you, you, so that would be my, that would, if someone were to ask me, that'd be my advice, you know, get, because it's hard to sell a business. You can't do it. You can't provide all the information and everything on your own. And when you do, I think when you do, when you try to hide it from everybody, you try to do everything yourself. First of all, you go crazy. And second of all, um, the buyer's like, why isn't this person letting anybody know about that. I mean, what, what, they're, they're trying to get into their books and pull reports. They don't even know how to do it. What, why can, you know, they're, so you begin to wonder about the trust inside the business. Um, Isn't it funny? It's, um, I'm, I've, geez, I've, I've probably said this a hundred times on this show alone, but it's, you know, to use your words, selling business is hard. It, it, hard. I, most people really underestimate how challenging it is to get a, get a deal done. And 
I always sort of say to my clients when they're considering going down this path is, you know, look, you, you've got to fundamentally, a, a deal only gets done between a willing buyer and a willing seller who can develop an enormous amount of trust in a very short period of time. So you've got to kind of get out of your your own head a little bit, put yourself in the shoes of the other party and say, well, if I was looking at myself, what would be important? You know, what are some of the things that I'd want to see and and how can I try to be as transparent as possible to develop that trust and and demonstrate that we are dealing in good faith? Um, and that's 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 a hard a hard step for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, there's a real skill in in being someone who can make that kind of connection with someone, you know, like you said, quickly and then maintain it through the 90 or 120 or however many days of due diligence you have where you are naturally on some things going to be on opposite sides of a belief system or a number or whatever. It's it's a real skill to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, can, can I ask, in, in the transactions you've done, Mike, um, have you, in doing the transition and merger, have you ever had situations where you've had to let go a lot of staff or a significant portion of the of staff? Um, so it was never our intention to, on any of the ones that we've done to do that. We always wanted, we always thought we wanted and needed the people. And a lot of the things we were buying were, um, you know, where there, there's truck drivers and technicians and all that. They're really, you know, needed. Um, so that was never our intention, but we did have some where, where, you know, there was one person in the company who wasn't, you know, happy with the transaction for one reason or another. And they had a lot of sway over the people who worked there. And we were, you know, we had, we had some where we lost people, you know, that we, we had no desire to lose. And we didn't think we, we didn't think we did anything to lose them, but, you know, just one person was like, we're going to go work. I'm going to go work over here and I'm going to, you know, bring you guys with me. And so we have had that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and I think this goes back to what you were saying before about people being the most important thing. And, and, you know, if we get this group of people together, I mean, we've got to form some kind of culture that works, right? So, you know, if you have people undermining the culture, you know, geez, you're just fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. But it's not that easy because you don't, sometimes you don't know, you know, there are some people, Simon, who, when they're talking to you, they're a hundred percent on board and they're, you know, going to do all this stuff. And you walk away feeling like this is great. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. as soon as you're gone, they are telling everybody that you're full of crap and you know, that just, so it's, it's not as easy as it sounds, right? Because people are complicated beings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because I, I, I know having had a few businesses and I've worked in a number of corporates and managed teams and everything else. I've, I've always had this idea that, you know, I don't necessarily expect that people are just going to want to work in their jobs forever. You know, I assume that people will either want to move up or move out at some point. Um, and so if you kind of, I work, always worked off the basis that we will do our best to keep everybody aligned and, and happy because it drives efficiency and we all do a good job. But if you're not happy or things have changed, and I used to say this to myself, come and talk to me. Like, I mean, let's have a really just a frank conversation. I'm not going to use that against you. I mean, I, I might be able to help you make the shift you want. And, you know, and I, I remember having a similar conversation with one of my bosses when I was 25 or something and said, look, I'm, I was 
killing my sales goals and I was doing this stuff. I was making more money I'd ever made. I, you know, it was fantastic. I felt like I was king of my own little kind of world. And, but I got bored. <laughs> I remember saying to my boss at the time, look, I'm like, everything is going really great, but I'm, I'm really bored. I, I, if I don't find something else to do, you know, take on something more challenging, you know, I, I'd probably have to leave at some point. And, and all I remember my boss is saying, thanks so much for coming to me and talking to me about this. Like, look, look, give me some timelines. How, how long have I got to kind of get, give some thought to this and, and maybe put something on the table? And I said, look, I'm not in a rush. Like, geez, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not going anywhere in the next six months. But, geez, if we didn't have an answer in the next sort of 10 to 12 months, you know, I'd probably find myself out there looking. Um, and so he, he was so appreciative of it. And as it was, I ended up, they, you know, wanted to expand and we'd ended up going doing this greenfield operation. It was all excellent. And I ended up staying there a num- number of years more. But I just, I always remembered the way my boss reacted and I, th- and I admired it. I thought, you know, he was really emotionally intelligent and, um, and supportive. And so I've, I guess, you know, if that was 20 odd years ago, I guess I've carried that with me for 20 years thinking, how do you try to work with these complex beings called people? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really smart too. I mean, the the like the how I felt when I worked for that guy after I got fired. I never wanted anybody working on my team who felt that way. I just there's the life's too short. I never wanted that. And so I hope that I um you know, encouraged that same kind of thing and did it in a way that was safe, you know, if you if if, if you weren't happy Let's talk about why you're not happy and see if we can fix it. When maybe we can and maybe we can't. But if we if we can, great. If we can't, that's okay. Um, that's okay. And you you know you you can you can stay as long as you you know you know be 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 a productive member or or I, I'd be I'd be happy to help you leave and try to find you know something that I can help you with because it's natural for people to move on and want to do other things. I want to be that that way. So why would I have an expectation for anyone else not to? But I also want to create an environment with the opportunity and the and the culture and the and the and the positive feeling that that make people, you know, want to keep producing for for, you know, for us, for our team. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's uh, I I really believe that 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 old saying, you know, no, nobody will ever remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And you know, it's actually okay for us to part and go in different directions. And but if we do it in a respectful way and we have genuine intent of of trying to help people and do the right thing, then people part ways on on very very good terms. And um, and that's that's I don't know. I think that's a healthy way to to operate. So, I, I think so too. Um, you don't want to make people feel like they're you don't. I think it's a big mistake when someone, you know, does want to leave to to make them feel like they're making a mistake. Cuz they didn't come to you to tell you that they're thinking about or they are leaving without some really careful consideration on their part and they they don't even know if they're right, but the last thing they need is to be told you're wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. By by a vested interest really, like yes, let's, let's right. be honest. So Yeah, right. Um Good point. Cool. So, so, and and maybe that's a good segue. You know, speaking of exits and people exiting and that sort of stuff. I mean, um, you know, you guys sold your business in 2015. Can you talk us through maybe a little bit of 
sort of what led to that? You know, what, did, did you guys start talking about exits? What, what did that part of the journey look like? In 2000, well, by, by in 2013, um, my, my partners, um, Larry and Chuck, the ones who came in, you know, and helped us get it off the ground there when we were short of funds. They they wanted to leave. I mean, we'd been partners for 20 years at that point. And they were both um 15 years older than than I was. So, you know, they they were and um and I and and I thought that was great because I at my other partner Butch had passed away by that time. So uh, it was an opportunity for me to to own 100% of the business and so i wanted to to make it happen and those guys were great and we worked out a deal to make it happen and 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 i was very happy with that situation simon except that you know paying them uh you know we 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 paid a lump sum and then we paid a note um as well it was basically taking all the excess cash that we had um to do that. And so we weren't able to make acquisitions. We weren't able to do some of the growth things that I, that I really uh, enjoyed and wanted to do, but that was okay. I was sitting, I was sitting it out, you know, it was going to be, you know, total of five years to get that done. Fine. You know, we'll just, we're doing fine and just take a break from that. But, but around, um, uh, late 2014, I, I was approached by, um, by a big company that, uh, you know, wanted to, well, they were interested in buying our company because they wanted a, a platform of services that were more like ours. They, they didn't have that platform of services and they wanted direct, direct relationships with the clients, which they didn't have, um, either. And, you know, I, I, at first I, I was, you know, I was just not interested, but after I thought about it for a while and I said to myself, well, it might actually be a good time because, you know, I don't, I, I, I own basically a hundred percent of the business. Um, we, you know, the waste business is, is very highly regulated. There's, you know, and trucking and all that, there's always a problem, you know, somebody's suing you or you got a, you got this, you got a neighborhood problem or you have, um, you know, there's always a there's always a problem, and and at that particular time we didn't have any problems, um, which which was unusual to not have any any problems. And so, um, so I thought about it. I came up with you know I I I kind of did my own investment banking and tried to figure it out. Okay, I think I know, um, you know what it's what it's worth, um, and did the math on that. And said, well, if, you know, if, if, if this is, if we can get this, does it make sense to, you know, to, to, to go through this and, to, and ultimately determine that it did. I'd, I'd love to ask you a little bit about um, thinking around valuation without going into areas that might be sensitive. But before I get to that, so it, it sounds like you, you weren't really thinking about selling at all prior to this person kind of tapping you on the shoulder. Is that a fair no, comment? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, and so so the tap on the shoulder was a little bit of a catalyst to change the thinking. You started considering the situation, both the company, the environment, all the rest of it. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. When that person, when that company came and approached you, 
did you end up um, going out and speaking to other potential buyers as well? I did. Um, so by this time, I thought, you know, I'd been in, involved in private equity on the on um, you know personally, and I'd been through an investment banking process before, and I thought well, I'm pretty smart, you know, so I'm. I think I can set up my own little auction here. So there, there had been another company that had, that had expressed interest, uh, but we, but it, it was a couple of years ago, and they were kind of always just snooping around, you know. And so I, I did reach out to them, and I said, "Hey, the, <clears throat> there might be an opportunity for you now, you know, if you really are serious." And and uh, and they were, they were serious, and they did, um, they they came at it hard and. And and you know I ended up with with two offers as as a result of that and ended up ended up taking the one that I thought was better. But um, so so that's what that's how I did it that time. I did it myself. Yeah, interesting. Um, and and in the waste services sort of sector, is is there a typical way that businesses are valued? Like, is it a multiple of EBITDA or something like that? Yeah, it's. I mean, ultimately, it's a multiple of EBITDA. Now, you know, some people say, "Well, we're going to look at EBITDA. We're going to look at discounted cash flow. We're going to, you know, all these 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 MBAs get involved and they say all of this stuff." But now I know for that, and they'll look at you know what's the capex spend and they'll do these calculations. But it's all EBITDA. It's just a matter of what's the multiple they're going to give you on the EBITDA based on the based on the the, the capital that's needed to keep the business going every year. I mean, I think that's, that's what, that's what it was. And that's what pretty much what everyone, um, that I've been involved in, except the ones that I did myself. I didn't do, I didn't do deals like that. I, I, you know, I, but we weren't, we weren't buying companies that were in a process or anything. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And, and I think too, even when people are using other methodologies, they've still got to come up with a number and that number can still be reverse engineered into a multiple of EBITDA, right? You'll always be able to look at it and go, okay, that's kind of how that fits. Um, you know, you sort of triangulate it. Um, is there a typical, is there a typical range for, for this industry that, that, that businesses generally trade at? Well, um, yeah, it depends on the size. I mean, it's sure. yeah, the, the bigger, the higher the EBITDA, the higher the higher the potential multiple you'll you'll get um ours was in ours was a little over eight um that that was in 2015 if you know with what's happening you know i if that business sold today it would probably be 10 um but uh, and, and and just and just to pick it, pick up on that point and, and i know we, we had a very sort of brief chat off offline before we started but um, you know, one of the things we've been saying on the show for a while is that the last 12 months has been just madness in, in M&A. You know, there's, there's so much money in the economy, low interest rates, you know, um, people's other portfolios are kind of already overweight. <clears throat> so maybe they're looking at other investment opportunities, all this stuff. Is, it, is that why you believe the multiple would be higher today? Yeah, for sure. So private equity is the reason that it would be higher today because uh, we didn't, in our industry, now, at certain sectors of the waste industry were, you know, had private equity investment for much longer. But this niche that we were in, it was it was just starting or hadn't even started at this point. So you were really, you really only had strategics 
um, as buyers. And um, now, you like like the deal we just did, a similar company, we had uh, 17 offers you know, 17 offers. And I think, I think 12 of them were financial, you know, were private equity and the, and of the others, probably three or four of them were, were, were strategics, but they were private equity backed strategics. So it just, that that's driven up the multiple. There's just more demand for the businesses and there's more cash to do it. And so the competition for deals and the multiples, the competition from deals for deals Especially for companies with, you know, EBITDA that's more than five million bucks or something. I mean, it's just, um, it's they're very attractive and they'll they'll really compete hard for those. So so the business would have sold for for more if I had held on to it till now. But you know, sure, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, can't play can't play that game. So yeah, no, of course, yeah, hindsight. What a wonderful thing it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um. Out of interest here, what what did the process look like? So they've, they've they've tapped you on the shoulder, expressed some interest. You start talking to other parties. Can you talk us through how long did that process take, and and were there some key kind of stages or elements to it? Yeah, it took six months. Uh, Lesson. So from the time they first talked to me, and then, which is maybe November. We ended up closing in May of the next year. So that's about six okay. months. Now, the actual, I didn't actually engage with them until about four months. Um, well, two months from when they first came to me. So the, so our due diligence process was four months. Well, okay. Yep. But that, and, and six months, generally speaking, is actually quite, quite quick. That's, yeah, that's, that's definitely quick. Yeah. Now, Interestingly, the last one, the last one that we did, it was 30 days. Wow. <laughs> Again, look at that's what that's what competition, that's what competition does for a deal. We can we can do due diligence in 30 days and close. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they did. Yeah. No, that's fabulous. I, I we actually, um, you know, COVID hit. Um, we had an e-com business we were selling, and and we broke a, our own record with it because we literally, from the day we pulled the trigger on the campaign, um, and in fairness, there was probably six weeks worth of work we did before we pulled the trigger and went went to market type thing. But yeah, from the day we pulled the trigger to the day we closed, and it was settled, was sixty six days. And and I'm always telling people like. That's one end of the extreme. Please don't think that's normal. We're not. Do, like, I yeah. Can't, do you know? <laughs> do not. Like, yeah. Do not think yeah. that that's going to be you. It's not. Yeah. Gonna... Exactly. Yeah. Other end of the spectrum. I had one client that took eighteen months. All right. So you know, just iterations and different buyers and things fell over, and it's like it's so unpredictable. So, um, but you know, it's I. I guess that's the benefit of having done it many times for yourself. I mean, you now you understand kind of. What the process, sh- what a good process should look like, but I guess also to you, you're probably better at seeing risks coming over the hill, right, <laughs> before they actually yeah, land in your lap. That that actually reminds me of you know another thing we were talking about before when you you know you were saying that you help companies get ready for exit, even if they're going to pass it on to the next generation or something. We did that. That's super smart because if the more prepared you are for this type of event. The faster it's going to go, because you are going to be asked for stuff that 
if you hadn't thought about it before, you one have no idea how to put it together. You don't you don't have it. You don't know how to put it together. So you have to scramble to try to to try to do it. But if you've if you run your business like you are planning to sell it, meaning, um, that, well, there's a whole lot involved in that. But if you run it like you're planning to sell it, when it comes time to sell, you're going to be ready for it, and your business is going to be better. Right. And buyers love businesses that are ready to sell, meaning when they ask for something, it's not like they just asked a question, uh, you know, from Mars or something. Right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yes, different language. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We have that. We do have that. Oh, great. OK. Um, at least that's been my that's been my experience. So getting ready, running your business as if you're go as, as if you are getting ready to sell it, I think is always smart, even if you have zero intention of selling the business, because your business will run better uh, uh, and be more profitable and all of those things if you do it that way, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Look, I completely agree with you. You know, it's um, it's it's one thing to say I'm trying, I'm going to go and sell my company to saying I want to build a company that is saleable. Um, you know, as, as you say, I mean, they're usually a lot more fun to run because there's a lot less stress and a lot less demanding on you, and as you say, even more profitable. So, so to totally agree on that. Um, Mike, out of interest too, there. So many guests we've had on this show, we we talk about how their deal kind of got structured. Um, so once again, you know, don't don't want to tread on anything that might be sensitive here, but we, we often talk uh, hear about three different buckets, you know, in in a in a deal structuring part of the consideration. You know, cash up front, um, maybe a deferred payment that's not at risk; it's just a deferred over a period of time, and then and then earnouts. Um, did you have you know a mix of those? Was it just you know, what, can you tell us a little bit about how you, how you structured your deal? Sure. So uh, our deal was structured as uh, all cash, 10% escrow that would be released in two buckets, nine months and 18 months, half and half. Um, and do your listeners know what escrow are for? Okay. Well, well, let, let's let's cover it just in case. Yeah. So. The, the, the escrow, as I mentioned, was 10% of the purchase price. And that's, that's basically um, an insurance policy for the buyer that all the, the warrants and representations that you've made are accurate and that nothing, um, nothing comes out of the woodwork after the closing that you didn't disclose that you um, should have disclosed or should have known about or should have known about as a potential and the um and in ours we had triggers like you know if something came up and it was less than $100,000 nothing would happen they would just pay it and if it was over $100,000 they call it a tipping basket and that would then you know you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to give up some of your escrow fortunately in our case we did not have to give up any of the escrow but that's what that's for um we did not have any we did not have an earnout um, so it was just the, uh, it was just the escrow. Now, if I had left the business prior, so there was a real estate component to ours as well, which is the second part of the sale. And the deal that we had was that if I were to leave the business before a year, I would, I would, I would give up, um, some of the value of the real estate in that second sort of transaction. Um, but but outside of the, that's that 
in a nutshell, that was that was it. Yeah, yeah. And and so okay, so you stayed around for at least a year after the deal was done. Um, yeah. Was that in a typical like? Did you just maintain your typical employment status? Like you, you're employed, you're getting paid. Is is that yeah. right? Yes. Um, so for for so for a while, I kept my same position, and then um, I transitioned into something else, and I transitioned into something else. So it was a, basically a, a way for for me and for them to make sure that things were going the way they wanted, and that um, you know I could do less and less, um, but but still be there if I was needed for for something. You know, basically just to make the transaction go as smoothly as possible. Yeah, yeah, that um, that that does make a lot of sense too. Um, I am a little cognizant of time here, Mike, because I could I could talk to you all day about this stuff. <laughs> um, out out of interest, you know, but I I know a lot of people be wondering about that transition period. Um, how did you just? I mean, generally speaking, how did you find it? Was there a was it difficult shifting from the business owner to being, you know, somebody else? Um. It- I'm not going to tell you that it was easy all the time. It wasn't, it wasn't easy all the time because, you know, I think one of the, the, here's the things you have to get ready for if you're going to sell the business. One, um, it's not yours anymore, right? So that's, that comes as a shock to some sellers. (laughs) They think they can, they think they can take the check and still, you know, act as if they own everything. So it's not, it's not yours anymore. Um, and the second is you, your opinions aren't the only ones that matter anymore. So I, um, I feel like I got myself as mentally prepared for that, Simon, before I signed anything so that, so that I could, you know, get into the transition phase with the, with the right mindset, which is, I don't own this anymore. They paid me for everything that's here. My job right now is to make sure that what they want to have happen happens to the extent that I that I can. And if I don't like it or I don't agree with it, that's my prerogative. Um, but I can leave if I don't like it. Um, otherwise, I'm here to support it. And that's and I won't say that every day I achieved that that goal, but that was definitely the mindset that I had and maintained as best I could going through it. And I think that's what trips up a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs when they sell is they, you know, they still think they own it. They still think their opinion is the only opinion that or the one that should carry the most weight. And they get aggravated about it when it doesn't happen. But it's it's going to happen. That's just the way it just I mean, put the shoe on the other foot. You would you know, that's the way it, it happens. So and. You know, in fairness, some people buy businesses and then they they don't do what they said they were going to do, and that can make you upset. You know, if that happens, there's there's legitimacy, I suppose, and not feeling that great about it. But um, but I I think going into it with the right mindset is is really important for your mental your mental <laughs> and overall health. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think that's great great advice. Um, I, I think part of this is. I think some business owners, and they don't necessarily acknowledge this consciously, um, still attach a sense of their personal self-worth to to the business and its identity and their identity within that business. 
Um, and, and I think if you ask a lot of people if they feel that way, they'll say no intuitively. But deep down, there is perhaps a little more of a connection than they thought. And it's not until they're out of that environment and the world has changed that it suddenly comes to the surface. Um, Simon, I, I agree with you. I, th I think that's one of the things that I think there's a real opportunity out there in people that can help prepare entrepreneurs for what it's like after they don't own the business anymore. Because like I say, your opinion isn't, you know, there's, there's all of these things, but here's the thing that, that you have to get used to. You're not going to be as important anymore unless you have some other purpose that's going to give you importance. You are not going to be as important anymore. People aren't going to take your calls like they used to. People aren't going to say yes to you all the time. You know, it's just, that's just the way it goes. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, me or if you're the CEO of, you know, Ford Motor Company. As soon as you stop being the CEO of Ford Motor Company, guess what? Life is different. <laughs> it's really different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So preparing for that is really smart. Really smart. Yeah, that's, um, that's great. Um, Mike, I, I, you know, I know you've gone on and done some amazing things um, since you sold this company, and and unfortunately, I guess we've run out of time a little bit. But I'd I'd love to have you back on the show sometime to unpack that next stage of your journey, if if you're willing to to share some more with us. But uh, it, yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I just know having sold this business, I mean, it's it's life transformational, right? Like, like things change and obviously your perspective things change, changes. For sure. Yeah. 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 Things um, change. I'd love to put you on the spot in a moment um, and, and perhaps ask you if there's a parting tip or piece of advice that you'd share with your fellow entrepreneurs who might be listening to this. Um, I imagine they're going to be at different stages of their journey, um, perhaps at that startup phase, you know, perhaps they're in that growth phase or, or getting ready to exit. So I don't know if there's, a, you know, a parting um, tip that you'd like to leave them with, but before we sort of get to that, I mean, are you happy for people to reach out to you and, and connect and things like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, you can find out all about me and you can connect with me on my website, which is my name, Mike Malatesta, M-A-L-A-T-E-S-T-A.com. And there you can, you can find out about me. You can, I've got a blog. I've got a podcast called How Did It Happen? I've got my book, Ownership. How Getting Selfish Got Me Unstuck, which is uh, an another thing that we, that I that we could talk about on next time, and um, and I've got my coaching there too, my ownership coaching. I coach high level entrepreneurs and CEOs, and um, if you want to connect with me there, great. LinkedIn is another place where I spend some time, so it's just my name, Mike Malatesta, on LinkedIn. Cool. Um, we'll put those links into the show notes um, just to make it easy for people. Um, look, as we always say on the show, guys, if you do reach out to, to Mike, maybe just um, don't send him a bland connection request. Maybe put a little note in there. Let him know that you heard him on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast just so he has some context. Um, yeah. But, you, um, you know, yeah, <laughs> nothing like these random connection requests. Oh, man, people I, like, oh, I can't stand this. <laughs> Tell me something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a human here, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Mike, I'm so grateful. Um, I, I know we've probably gone a little over the time, but I'm, I'm really appreciative of you coming on the show and, and sharing your story. I, I, I learned things today. I'm, I'm sure the listeners will as well. Um, so, yeah, r really appreciative of, you, of your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. Awesome. Okay, so is there, is there maybe one tip that, uh, that you'd, you'd share with people before we, uh, we finish up? Yeah, so 
this is going to be an unconventional tip and it, and it may need more explaining than I'm able to give it right now. But um, I would say my the, the number one thing that I think every entrepreneur should be is selfish, um, meaning you need to clearly know what you want. Because if you don't know what you want, it's going to be very difficult for you to get it. And if you do know what you want, it's going to be very easy to build a team of people to help you get it. I think that's fantastic advice. Mike, thank you once again. Really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, Simon. Thank you for having me. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.